Thanks, Andrew. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Christ Community. My name is Tim. I have the pleasure of serving as the, the campus pastor here. We're really glad you're here. And, and before we jump into um, the text Andrew just read, the story of the Exodus, I just wanted to briefly um, speak to uh, just obviously this has been a big week for us um, as, as a country in many ways. And, and obviously the, the Supreme Court on Friday legalized same-sex marriage. And, and in some ways that was really bad timing. Um, because we already did uh, three weeks on kind of our church and how we want to be a church and how we want to look at human sexuality back in February or March. So if you're newer, if you joined us in the last two or three months and you missed that, I'd really point you back to that sermon series, to those podcasts, as well as to the paper we wrote to kind of lay out how we see human sexuality, how we think it best leads um, to human flourishing. Um, and so if, if you haven't engaged there, please do. But just briefly this morning, I think it, it's worth just reminding us as a, as a church that we're a church who doesn't want to be political, but we do want to be prophetic. Um, so we don't speak to political issues all the time. We don't wear that, that card. So even in this moment, I feel a little awkward. But the reality is the Christian tradition always has a word to speak to those in power, um, how they treat the poor, um, how they look at human flourishing. And, and we as a church, obviously, we believe that, that marriage is best and God's design is between a man and a woman. And so in some ways... In humility and in, in, and in grace, we lament um, um, the decision that, that happened this week. But we also want to be like Christ, who, as John 1 says, is full of grace and full of truth. And it's hard to be full of both of those things. People tend to be full of one or the other. And to live into the tension of being both is what we want to be as, as a church. And so as we, we launch into to this sermon series, and as we reflect on where our country's headed in this past week, why don't we begin just in praying and prayer and seeking God's face. Let's pray. God, I thank you that Jesus is full of both grace and truth. And when he looks at me and my life and all the mess that I bring to him and to you, God, he's full of grace and kindness and compassion for all of us in this room. We can bring whatever is in our hearts, whatever we've done wrong, whatever mistakes we've made, we can bring it because Jesus is full of grace. But I thank you, too, that he's full of of truth, that he does not let us live our lives how we see fit because he sees the the disaster that often becomes. And so he brings his truth, and you bring your truth to us through your word. And so, God, I pray with our hearts and our minds and and your scriptures open this morning, God, that you would lead us, that your word is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. And without it, we're blind, we're dark, we can't see our way. So God, would you help us as a church see our own way to be full of grace and truth to whoever would walk in this door. We'd we'd express the good news of the gospel in open arms of acceptance, but we wouldn't back away. The gospel makes demands on our lives, all of our demands, all of our lives. It pushes back against us. Would we be humble enough to receive that? And God, I pray especially that we would embody that just the heart of the gospel message, which is that when we look at a world with so much, so much trouble and so much sin, that, that we'd be reminded we're, we're a part of the problem. And we'd first look into our own hearts, that we'd first chase after our own marriages with, with passion and with humility. And if we're married, God, that we would pursue our spouses above all else, that if we have kids, we would love our kids well, and that we as a church would pre- present an alternative to what our world says marriage is. A marriage, marriage is God that, that honor you, whether they're in public or they're in private. God, and above all, would you keep us humble, reminding that your grace is, 
is a costly grace. It cost Jesus his life on the cross, and it costs us everything to enter into this relationship with, with you. And so, God, would you now speak through your word, through this story of the Exodus, which is a reminder that you do not forget us, that you love us, that you come after us, no matter where we are or how, um, how difficult our situation must be. God, would you speak now through your word, for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I remember the first time that, that I drove east of, of Troost Avenue. That when I moved to Kansas City, a lot of people had told me that there's this, this major dividing line that's just so obvious in Kansas City. And if you're just a couple blocks west of Troost, you're in some of the nicest neighborhoods Kansas City has to offer. Some of the nicest homes Kansas City has to offer. But once you cross Troost, it becomes one of the most impoverished, most forgotten parts of our city. And I remember hearing that, but, but the first time driving that road, crossing that, that boundary, seeing it, seeing how forgotten one portion of our city is. Or everything about our own context here in Johnson County that a couple weeks ago, the Kansas City Business Journal released an article where they said, in the last 13 years, poverty has gone up 135% here in Johnson County. But the reality is in the suburbs, we, we can hide that so much easier. And those parts of our communities can be, can be so much easier to be forgotten. Or I turn on the news, right, with, with ISIS or with the shooting that happened last week in Charleston. It, it's hard not to feel like there are things that are just forgotten in our world, places in our world where we look at God and, and just say, God, do you, do you know what's going on there? Have you forgotten? Do you see? Do you hear? Do you know? And it's not just these, these big things. It's, it's also the personal things that we face in our own lives the real challenges we face, the things we fear, the things that weigh us down, the things that discourage us, the things, right, that you'll walk out of this, this room this morning with, on your mind, the burdens that, that you face. And for me as a pastor, one of the, the things that, that I learned early on in my ministry was, was people bring their prayer requests right to me, which is a great honor that people would ask me to pray for them. But then the reality is I, I know all of the mess in this room. I know all of the things that many of you are facing, the things that you're praying for, the things that weigh you down. And it's easy to, to have all of that and just say, God, do you, do you know anything that's going on? Are you doing anything? Do you see? Do you hear? Do you know? That in moments like that, it's, it's the prayer that Jesus called us to pray when he taught his disciples how to pray. Deliver us from evil, God. That, that's a prayer that, that's on my heart often. Deliver us. And in praying that, asking God, God, do you see, do you know? And these questions are the questions that, at the heart of one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible. It's a story that's been, been made into countless movies. It's a story that's been told countless times. It's a story that, that you and I, we're going to spend the next seven weeks telling as a church. The Exodus. The story of God delivering his people. And, and one of the reasons this story continues to be told over and over and over again is because of these fundamental questions that it asks. God, do you see what's going on in your world? Do you know? Are you aware? And as we begin this story in, in Exodus 1 and 2, what we'll find is, is this just terrible circling of the drain, so to speak, that, that just when it looks like things might be getting better, they just get worse. And when it looks like God might be intervening, things just turn into more and more of a disaster. And as we move through those two chapters, through Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, there's, there's three scenes that, that happen. 
That scene one is, is Pharaoh's palace. Scene two is, is on the Nile River. And scene three is in the desert. And as we move through these different settings, through these, these different scenes, the predicament, what happened, it just, get wor- it just gets worse. So let's take these two chapters through those three scenes, starting in, in Pharaoh's palace. And that's where the story of the Exodus begins, but it's not the Pharaoh that maybe you're thinking of, the Pharaoh who famously refused to let people, or it let Israel go. That, that, the Pharaoh that where this story starts is the Pharaoh who was over Egypt during a time of a guy named Joseph. And his story is told in the end of the book of, of Genesis. But, but what happened to that Pharaoh was, was this older Pharaoh from a couple hundred years ago, 400 years ago. He has a dream. And his dream can't be interpreted by anybody. And he had professionals who were supposed to be able to interpret his dreams, but no one could do it. No one in his entire palace understood what his dream meant. But someone in one of his prisons did. His name was Joseph. He was wrongfully in prison, but he was there in prison. And so these people tell Pharaoh, you need to to ask Joseph. He can interpret the dream for you. So Joseph does. He goes. And he can interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And here's what he tells that Pharaoh. He says, listen, your dream means this. You're going to have seven years of, of a really good harvest. You're going to have plenty of food. And then after those seven years of a really great harvest, you're going to have seven years of famine. And it's going to be terrible. It's going to be devastating. And so Pharaoh hears this and he realizes he's been given a great investment strategy, right? And so he puts Joseph in, tra- in charge of this entire plan to over the next seven years, even though they're going to have plentiful harvest, to begin to set that harvest aside so that in the years of famine there'd be food for, is- for Egypt to eat, but not just food for Egypt to eat, food for all of the world to, to eat. And so literally the world flocks to Egypt. And during this time, because of Pharaoh's investment, because he trusted Joseph, and Joseph oversaw this plan with mastery, Egypt becomes incredibly wealthy, incredibly rich. That Pharaoh then obviously, because he became incredibly rich, he really loves Joseph. Because Joseph was an Israelite, that Pharaoh really loved the Israelites. And he gives them a special part of the land of Egypt to live, to farm, to grow, and to flourish as a people. And that's in many ways where the, book, where the story of Exodus begins. Is, is Israel is in a good, good shape. They're flourishing. And we read that in verse 7 in chapter 1. It says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And if you read that verse and if you've read through the book of Genesis, you know those phrases are important phrases. That back in the beginning of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God had made these promises to this man named Abraham where he said, Abraham, you don't have any kids right now, but at some point I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. You're going to become exceedingly big. big. You're going to grow and you're going to multiply. You're going to flourish. And Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson. And so here at Exodus 1-7, we see the promises God had made in the book of Genesis being fulfilled, coming true. God's acting on his promises to his people. But then two things happen. Two things that, that ruin everything. The first being Joseph died. And suddenly Israel didn't have a prime minister over Egypt, Joseph. Suddenly they didn't have privileged status at the seat of power. Suddenly a Pharaoh was in power that that didn't have that connection to them as a people. But it's worse than that. Because it's not just that 
a Pharaoh died and, and then his son took over. It's, it's worse than that. What happened was most likely the Pharaohs under whom Joseph uh, lived under was, was the Hyksos Pharaohs. And they were a foreign invader of Egypt. And like most ancient empires, dynasties, they came and they went. And so what happened was the Hyksos, they came, they invaded Egypt, they took over Egypt, right? Then they became very wealthy through Joseph's plan, and native Egyptians didn't like them. And so eventually native Egyptians came, they threw the Hyksos out of power. And the native Egyptians then retook their own country. And so hopefully you're getting a sense of the predicament Israel's in. Because now they're... They're not just foreigners at a time of great national pride and mistrust of foreigners. They're also foreigners who were loyal to the Hyksos, that that were thrown out of power. The ones that the Egyptians hated, the Israelites were intimately connected to them. And now suddenly Israel, they don't have power. They're, They're immigrants at a time of great national pride. They're foreigners at a time of of great national pride. And so that's the predicament Israel now lives in. And Pharaoh takes a step, this new Pharaoh at Exodus 1, at the beginning of Exodus 1, takes a step that's entirely predictable. He declares all of the nation of, of Israel as, as his slaves, to do with what he wants. And if you spend any time or much time studying human history, you know this is a pretty common thing for human beings to do to one another. That's just briefly, I mean, you can think of, of Japan and the way they've treated Koreans and declaring themselves superior to the Koreans and making them slave labor. That Europeans did that to Africans. That the Germans did that to the Jewish people during World War II. That you read through human history, the reality is we humans have never needed much of an excuse to look at the foreigner or the immigrant or the different and say, you know what, we're better than you and we're going to rule over you as You're now our slaves. And so let me just interrupt briefly the story with a question. How do you see the foreigner among you, among us? Or the minority, the difference among us? There are few positions as a human being more vulnerable than being a stranger, than being an immigrant, than being a foreigner in a, a distant land. And it's important for all of us not to push back that question, but to let it sink in, because this is a problem for every human being. No matter who you are or where you come from, this is a problem for all of us. And one brief look at human history bears that out. And unless you think you're better than the one that God's going to call to deliver Israel from all of slavery, you have the same problem in your heart like I do. Because the one God who will call Israel out of slavery, the deliverer God will use to bring Israel out of slavery, has the same thing in his heart. And it's going to show in the story. And so brief aside, interrupted. So Pharaoh, he brutally oppresses Israel. And they're expected to leave their families. They go to these distant cities to work, to be enslaved, to build entire sections of cities from scratch. And they're treated terribly. In in Hebrew narrative, if you've ever read the Old Testament, it tends to be very dry. It doesn't use a lot of colorful language. But in verses 13 and 14, we get lots of colorful, direct language about what Pharaoh is doing to the Israelites. Here's what he says. says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Ultimately, that's Pharaoh's plan for how to stop Israel from growing and multiplying and becoming exceedingly strong, is to work them as slaves. Then they can't grow, right? They're going to die off. The husbands aren't going to be able to, to have kids. They're not going to be able to raise families. It was his plan. And so surely God's going to intervene, right? He's going to step in and stop Pharaoh from doing this, oppressing God's people, his chosen people, Israel. And God does intervene. But it's incredibly disappointing, at least to me. Verse 12, here's what happens. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the, Isra- the more um, the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now there's one sense in which that's encouraging, right? I mean, God's continuing to fulfill his promise. Israel, or Egypt's plan is not interrupting God's promises, but we all know what's going to happen next, Right? I mean, if this didn't work for Pharaoh to to kill off Israel's population, he's just going to take another step in that direction. I have to look at this and say, God, is this the plan? That that Israel's just going to have more babies and make Egypt more afraid of them and make Pharaoh more angry? Is this the plan? And it is. And it's going to get worse as we move out of Pharaoh's palace into the Nile River. So Pharaoh's plan is not working, so he adopts a new plan. And he calls in two midwives who were of the Israelite people. Most likely they were, they were probably administrative leaders. They were maybe midwives over midwives who oversaw all the births of the Israelite people. And he calls them in. Their names were Shifra and Pua. And what's interesting is Pharaoh never gets a name in all this story, but the two midwives do. We find out who they are, their names. Pharaoh calls them in, no doubt, to inflict a little fear upon them. And he says to, to these two midwives, listen, if a Hebrew boy is born, you're going to kill it. And if it's a girl, you can let her live. No doubt trying to, to make them afraid. No doubt there were threats attached to that. And Shifra and Pua, they, are, they do fear. But they don't fear Pharaoh. And one of the best verses in all the Bible, I love this. After Pharaoh brings him in, he plays the king card. I'm, I'm in charge here. You do what I say. Verse 17 but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And if you know anything about Jewish or about Christian history, you know this is the beginning of a long strand of our people's, of God's people's um, desire to stand next to their government and say, no, we're not doing that. Right, that we do not fear our government, our nation, our, our, our communities more than we fear our God. And when the government says, do this, and it goes against who God is and what he's created us to be and everything he calls us to do, we say no. We don't fear this culture, this world, this nation. We fear our God. And we're in a long tradition of people who have done that throughout our history. And really, Shifra and Pua, they're the ones who started that. We don't really see that in Genesis. In fact, even Abraham, when he goes to Egypt, he's afraid and he, he backs off, right? And there's a couple moments when his wife, he's afraid he's going to be treated badly because his wife is really beautiful, so he just gives his wife up, right? In weakness and, and no courage whatsoever. It's Shifra and Pua, the first people in the Bible who stand up and say, no. That's Pharaoh, you can say what you want. We're not going to do that. And so they don't. But they don't just stand up with arrogance or with, with pride. They're, they're very discerning. They're very shrewd. They're very wise. And their plan works. 
And I don't know what their plan is. I just know there's this verse that's very strange that I don't, I don't know quite how to interpret. But Pharaoh, he sees Hebrew boys keep being born. They keep, they keep uh, um, growing old. And so he calls the midwives in to give account. They ask him, or he asks them, what are you doing? I told you to kill the Hebrew boys. And here's their response. So the midwives said to, Hero, he, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, I have no idea what that means. Um, all I know is that it probably means that the midwives came up with some sort of plan that prevented them from being in a position to have to kill these Hebrew baby boys. I think most likely what happened was they told the Hebrew women, have the baby, then call us. Don't call us before the baby's born. Because whatever Pharaoh asked the midwives to do, he wanted to keep it quiet. He's not yet ready to the point where it's just open season killing baby boys. right? It's, it's, it's not there. He's trying to keep it quiet. That's why he's, a, he's gone to the midwives who can, um, you know, who can much more easily do this without anyone finding out, without even the pregnant woman finding out. But they don't. And whatever their plan was, it works. And the Hebrew boys continually are born. And maybe now's the moment when we expect God to intervene. Right? I mean, if there's anything more discouraging than, than a, a human society that, that mistreats its unborn, its newborns, surely that's going to raise God's ire to, to intervene, right? And he does. And yet again, it's very underwhelming. So what he does is he, he goes to the midwives. And most likely, based on the language in Exodus 1 and 2, these midwives were unable to have children. They were unable to have families themselves. They delivered babies as a living, but they weren't able to have kids themselves. And in Exodus 1, we're told God gave them children as a, as a blessing for their, their courage and their faithfulness to God. So they're given families. So God does intervene. It's beautiful. I don't want to undermine that in any way. And yet the question still remains, but God, what about Pharaoh? The one who wants to kill the children you just gave to these midwives. What are you going to do? Is this the plan? Do you see do you hear? And it gets worse than that. As Pharaoh's next phase of the plan, apparently the Egyptian hatred of the Israelites has grown to a point where the next thing he says to do actually happens. And he tells the Egyptian people, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, throw it into the Nile River. It's just open genocide. And apparently it was happening because towards the end of, of Exodus 1, beginning of Exodus 2, there's a Hebrew woman who actually has to go and take her own son to the Nile River. She puts him in a basket. She actually calls it an ark. She puts him in this little ark. She closes it up and she places her own son in the Nile River, hoping no one will find him and she can leave him there. And go back and get him, perhaps. We don't know what exactly is going on there. All we know is now it's the Hebrew women who have to take their own sons to the Nile River and place them in an ark and hope God will protect them like God protected Noah in his ark. And then the worst possible thing happens to that little baby boy in his ark. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Only, for whatever reason, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't listen to her dad's command. Instead of taking that baby boy out of the ark and throwing him in the Nile River, instead she adopts him as her son. Which raises the question, who, why in the world did that happen? What changed in her heart to give her the courage to, to, to ignore her father's command and adopt a son that's not hers? So she adopts 
the son is hers. And that little baby's sister was, was close by keeping an eye on her, her baby brother. And surely saw in tear as Pharaoh's daughter went down to, to pick up this baby boy. And, and as she began to realize that this Pharaoh's daughter was going to adopt him, she runs, the sister runs to, to Pharaoh's daughter and says, can I get you a nurse to, to care for the baby that can nurse him? And she goes, and the, the boy's own mother gets to nurse him and care for him. I mean, it's an amazing moment in this story where maybe finally the, the, the table is starting to turn. Or maybe the plan is starting to make sense. But as we move from the Nile to the desert, the reality is it's just going to get worse again. And so Pharaoh adopts this little baby into her family. And this baby boy, he grows, he grows up. And one of the first things that Pharaoh's daughter does is, is she names this little baby boy. And in that day, when you name someone, it wasn't just what you're going to be called. It was, it was really to speak to who you were, what you were going to do, what your life was going to be all about. And so Pharaoh's daughter, because she had found this little baby boy in the Nile River amidst the reeds, and she drew him out of the Nile River amidst the reeds, she calls this little baby boy, Draw Out. She names him Moses. And again, there's a hint there, right? Maybe if this little baby boy was drawn out from amidst the reeds, maybe this is the baby boy to draw out Israel from Egypt and slavery. Maybe there's some hope in this plan. Maybe the plan's finally taking a good direction. And it's clear from Exodus 2, Moses thought that about himself. He was reading the tea leaves. He saw the potential. He knew what his name was. He knew he was the one brought up in Pharaoh's house and also an Israelite. And apparently there's a moment in his life where he begins to see himself more as an Israelite than an Egyptian. And in Exodus 2.11, we're told that Moses went out among his people, referring to the Israelites, and he goes out among his people, and when he goes out among his people, he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, and he sides with the Israelite, right? And there's this moment of hope, maybe, that wells up in us, that Moses is going to fight for justice. He's going to fight for, for what's good. He's going to fight to free Israel under the yoke of this brutal oppressor, this murderer, Pharaoh. And then Moses ruins everything. That he looks around and he makes sure no, no one's watching him. And there he is. Now he is in the position of power over the minority, the Egyptian. And he murders him, kills him. Buries him in the sand, hoping no one will find him. And leaves. And the next day, then he sees a couple Israelites fighting among themselves. And he says, stop, you guys, you guys are slaves, right? We have, to, we have to start the movement. We have to be free. And they look at Moses and they say, you're a murderer, why are, you telling, why are you speaking to us? And now Moses knows two things. One, he knows his secret is out. And the Israelites don't respect him. He does, he's, not a, he's not an Israelite anymore. They won't welcome him. And this also surely means Pharaoh knows. And he's killed an Egyptian as an Israelite. And he can't be among the Egyptians anymore. And so he has to flee. He has to abandon Egypt abandoned Israel and he goes out into the desert by himself, alone with no family, no friends, and sits down at a well by himself. And yet again, it looks like God's plan so clearly something good is going to happen, and Moses has ruined it all, and he's alone by himself in the desert. But it gets worse than that. 
that these seven women come with their flocks of sheep. And, and as they come, these other shepherds come and try and drive their flock away. And Moses, we get a glimpse into to who he really is here. He's generous, he's courageous, he's strong. That he fights off these shepherds by himself. And he, sh- he saves these, these, this flock of sheep, these seven women's sheep, by himself. And even though that sounds really great, if you're reading that narrative, you have to ask, so did God draw Moses out of the Nile River so that he could save a flock of sheep? Is this as good as it gets? I mean, is this, just, is this exciting? Is this supposed to happen? And Moses ends up settling with that family. He marries one of those girls. And towards the end of that narrative, there's a moment where we get a glimpse of Moses' own heart. He has a son by his wife, and his son he names Gershom which means foreigner there. I think the reason Moses, that's the name he goes with, is Moses knows he's ruined his life. He was an Egyptian. He was an Israelite. He was to draw Israel out of Egypt. He was the one person who could have done that, and now he's a foreigner. He has no home. He has no people to deliver. He's Gershom. And yet that brings out one of the fundamental lessons of Genesis and Exodus, which is, The moment you think you know what God's plan is, is probably proof you're about to do something disastrously stupid. You don't know. But that also means the flip is true. If you're convinced you don't know what God's plan is, and in fact you've ruined any hope of God using you, it's probably a moment God's about ready to invade your life and use you in ways beyond your imagination. But if you beat him to that step... If you decide you're the deliverer, or you know what the right thing to do is, or you know the next step to take, you, you know God's plan, you just got to help him out a little bit. He's just dragging his feet, and you're ready to step in, push the plane down the road a little bit. If you're there, you're going to fail. You're going to do something disastrously stupid. But the moment you see yourself as a foreigner in God's own land, the moment you know you've ruined your own life, and you cannot push God's, forward, God's plan forward at all, you're probably in a good position. But there's hope in the story. And that's actually where the narrative ends. In Exodus 2, verses 23 and 25. Where we see this plan that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And ends with Moses almost naming his son as a lament. I'm a foreigner. I don't have a people. I don't have a family anymore. And then Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. Reframe everything we've, we've looked at for the last two chapters. Everything that's happened gets a new picture in these three verses. Here's what they say. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Did you hear that? God heard their cries. He remembered his promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw Israel. He saw his people. And he knew. And suddenly everything we've we've read gets a little bit of a different picture, doesn't it? That nothing, and I mean nothing, escapes God's watchful eye. His just heart. That God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows No matter what it is. And if that's true, not just in this story, but if that's true, if what God, if who God is, is a God who sees, who remembers, who hears, who knows, 
then, then there are three things we need to take from those three verses and, and press them deep into our hearts. First being, we need to be a people who cry out. Right? That we hear their cry for rescue, it was heard from God. And this verse is both endlessly encouraging, but it's also immensely intimidating. Right? It's encouraging because it, it means the voiceless in our society have and are being heard. That our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed in the Middle East now in this moment by ISIS and many others, their cries and our cries on behalf of them, they are being heard. That anyone who's enslaved, oppressed, walked over, when they have cried out to God, there has been a God who's heard everything they've cried out. And if that's true of, of those big things that God God hears and hears those cries. It's true of the little things or the smaller things in our lives that we cry out to him for, the things that weigh our, us down, our burdens, the things that oppress and, 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 and leave us discouraged. And I don't want to equate them to the things that, that are facing the Israelites, but the reality is our God is a God who hears. So cry out. Now this week I was in Psalm 32, and, and there's this line about, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Don't keep silent. You'll waste away. Cry out to God. He hears. So that, that, that idea is immensely encouraging to us, but it's also intimidating. It's intimidating to Pharaoh, to the oppressors, to Moses in the moment when he looks around and no one's watching. There is someone watching. And there's nothing that gets past him. We should call us to a stark reality to live in holiness before our God, who, if we become the oppressor, God will hear the cries against us. It keeps us humble because it's intimidating. And so it's a warning, it's an invitation. It's a warning to the Pharaoh, right? It's a warning to him, hey, I'm, I hear what Israel's saying about you. But it's an invitation to us. That we're a people whose cries are heard. And it's not just to cry out, but it's also to join in God's fight against oppression and injustice in this world, right? To join the midwives who fought for the, the voice of the unborn, right? The voice that often gets overheard in our society. To join the midwives in fighting against injustice against the unborn. It's to, to, for us to cry out for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world as Christians. That today is one of the most precarious times to be a Christian. Even though we don't feel that in our context, in many places in this world, to be a Christian is to put your life at risk. That we as a people cry out, we join fights against injustice. We know God has heard that cry and he will act. So groan, cry out, for God hears. But it's not just a call to cry out, it's also remember he remembers. Remember God remembers his promises. That's the point of verse 24. God remembered the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think it's important for us to hear, because at least in my own prayer life, I get so focused on the burdens that I face, the things that weigh me down, that I forget the incredible promises God has made to you and to me if you're in Christ. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. That, that God loves you to such the extent that neither height nor death, nor, love, nor, nor angels nor demons, nor death nor life can separate you from his love. That if you confess your sins before him, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you, whatever you've done. Do you hear, do you, do you remember those promises? Do you remember that he remembers? It's an important moment in this story. God's not just a distant God off in heaven He's a God who's made promises to his people and he will act on behalf of those promises. So cry out, remember he remembers. 
And thirdly, I would just say live, live in the tension. And here's what I mean by that. I love the last phrase of Exodus 2. And God knew. And we don't know what he knows. Right? It's, it's open-ended. We're not sure what he knows. I mean, we think we know what he knows, but it doesn't, it's just God knows. God knew. And, and so much of my, my time, my life, I've asked the question, God, is this the plan, really? Is this what we're doing? Is this where you're, draw, is this where you're taking history? Is this where you're taking the world? And as a pastor, I've asked that question so many times, I've lost count. And yet, Exodus's two answers to that tension is, God knows. And I don't know what he knows. <laughs> I don't know what it means that he knows. I just know he knows. And that's enough. And maybe for you, that tension, it's too much. Maybe for a, you're a Christian that you're struggling with your faith there because God's, he's just really pushing you and, and you want to know God knows, you want to know what he knows, you want to know what he plans to do with what he knows. Or maybe it's even a reason you're not a Christian and you just, you can't live in that tension that that God, God knows, and, and so much seems to happen in this world that, that God isn't doing anything about. And if there was a good and gracious, loving God, he would act. And yet, if that's where you are, whether you're a Christian or, or you're not, I think this, this story speaks into that tension for us. God knows. The Hebrew word know there, it doesn't just mean like God mentally is aware of it. Like it's, it's, on, it's in his brain. He knows. The Hebrew word know, it's a relational word. It's to come near. It's to be intimate. It's to be personal. So when he, Exodus 2.25 says God knew, it means it's personal. It means he, he wants to intervene. He's going to intervene. He knows not just in a sense of he can tell you Israelite is being oppressed. He knows within his very being what that means in the struggle and the fight his people are going through. And that, of course, for us as Christians... That tension is ultimately lived out in perfect picture on the cross, right? Through Jesus and what he did for us on his cross. That surely if any of us had been there in that moment on the cross, we would have looked at his life, Jesus, how he healed the sick and cared for the poor and the oppressed, how he preached good news to everyone. And then we see his life end up on a cross, crushed by Roman authorities, mocking him as king. We would have all looked at God and said, is this a plan really? A cross? Jesus humiliated by Rome, the very people that need to be thrown out of power. And yet it's there on the cross, we as Christians can confidently say, God knows. He knows the struggle you and I face, the burdens that weigh us down, the oppressions we face, the reality of sin that you and I are caught in. He knows because he faced it on a cross and he overcame all of it. That's how we can know God knows, right? That he didn't just say from heaven, hey, you're forgiven, it's all good, but he entered our lives. He gave up the riches of heaven for the poverty of a manger. He gave up the praises of the angels and God the Father to be cursed on a cross. He knows whatever burden or oppression you will face in this life as much as you do. And he knew it from a cross. That is there on the cross as we, we reflect on Jesus and who he is that we as Christians can say confidently, God, God sees. God remembers. God hears and he knows. Let's pray. Father, I pray now in this moment we would be reminded of your personal love and care for us. Of the promises you've made for us through Jesus on this cross. That in this moment right now, no matter what we've brought in, no matter what we've done wrong, you are here and present and you will not leave us nor forsake us. 
And I pray those promises would drive us to cry out to you, to, to wake up and our first words be addressed to you, to go to sleep and our last words be addressed to you, that our lives would be a living cry to you, knowing that you hear everything we say to you. You hear every cry and you will one day make every groan right. So God, would you fill us with your presence now, your hope and your grace that we might worship you more fully. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.